Gen X Playback, episode number 21. We're going hopping, hop, we're going hopping today When things are popping, pop, a Philadelphia way We're going to drop it, drop, on all the music they play On the bandstand we're going swinging, swing. We're going to swing in the crowd. We'll be clinging. And welcome everybody to the Gen X Playback Show. It's the show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are broadcasting from the largest podcast in Nestville, Pennsylvania. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I am Sean. And you are listening to the Bandstand Boogie done by none other than Mr. Barry Manilow. Correct. We want to give out a little shout out to one of our little towns that's been listening to us since the beginning. And that would be Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, Sean. So American Bandstand and Drexel Hill. What would you think might be the common uh, common uh, connection there? Uh, did Dick Clark live there at Hey, there time? you go. Dick Clark and Ed McMahon lived there at the same time. Yes. In uh, Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. A little town. I guess you call it a town. It's right outside of the city line limits. It is right outside of Upper Darby, which is right up against the uh, the West Philly border. So just want to give you a little bit of background on Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. Okay. If you do, hadn't known anything, Sean, about Drexel Hill I, before. I know very little. I bet you know a little bit more than maybe you might have thought because think back to, I think it was 1999 or 2000, uh, those of you listening um, or that know us know that Sean and I are big Philadelphia Phillies baseball fans. And one of the things that we used to do is go to opening day uh, down at Veterans Stadium. So we think back to 1999, 2000, mm-hmm. um, my son Gavin, who was probably about five years old at the time, was with us. And I don't know if you remember, but we looked out into the outfield and there was this major brawl. Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. Bodies falling down. Well, believe it or not, that stems from the Drexel Hill Upper Darby area because there were two high schools that Mm -hmm. are situated right next to each other. You have the the private school, which is Monsignor Bonner. And at the time, that was the all-boys school. And then there was an all-girls school named Archbishop Prendergast, known as Prendy. Right next door there is Upper Darby High School. So that was a fight between the two schools that happened to break out well, during school hours, I believe. So yeah. uh, just, uh, um, but as and far as I as, recall, that was actually more entertaining than the game. Than the game that yeah, day. the game was kind of a snoozer. I think the Philly starter for that day was Garrett Stevenson, if uh, that will bring any, you really have to be a diehard Philly yeah. to remember that name. So let me throw some names out of some folks besides Dick Clark that uh, graduated from the, the various high schools. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised to hear some of the names. Um, the Upper Darby Royals, uh, Jim Croce. Jim Croce. Tina oh. Fey. Okay. Todd Rundgren. It's Todd Rundgren, you know, by the way, he's going to be performing with Daryl Hall. Yes, he's like, touring with Daryl yeah. Hall. Yeah. Which I thought was which was very cool. Daryl Hall and Todd Rundgren go way back. They've been friends for a long time, since the early 70s when, when both guys started out in Philadelphia. I just may have to go see them at the Hershey Theater <laughs> coming in May. Here's one that you'll like, Jeff Labar. Ah, Jeff Labar, the late Jeff Labar from Cinderella. Yep. And then there's an actress that goes by the name of Ree Hance now, but she's very uh, important to Gen X culture because she was the female lead in the movie The Blair Witch Project. Okay. Remember that movie? Did you see it? I did not see okay. it. Okay. No. All right. But no. she was in. She was the lead in that I mean, movie. I'm aware of it, but did not see it. All right. Uh, 
Monsignor Bonner has a little bit more of a sports background, but I just picked some names out that you would recognize. Uh, John Capaletti mm-hmm. went to Bonner. The uh, only Heisman Trophy winner ever to play for Penn State. And actor-comedian from the late 90s, early 2000s, Jamie Kennedy, spent a lot of time on MTV. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, he was definitely um, you know, a, a name, name face mm-hmm. from, from the uh, Gen X era. And for you local people, uh, local uh, sports fans, the Sixers had two general managers that came from Monsignor Bonner, and that would be John Nash and Ed Stefanski. All right. Okay. Now, Prendy, uh, there's a couple names that uh, are important to Gen X. First, from Saturday Night Live, Sherry O'Terry. She was part of that Will Ferrell. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, it was a good cast. It was the uh, late 90s, early 2000s SNL cast. She's a graduate from uh, Prendy. And Monica, and her- Monica Horan. You may not recognize her name, but she is an actress from a show that a lot of us Gen Xers watch, which was Everybody Loves Raymond. She played Robert's wife, Amy, and she is from uh, Darby, Pennsylvania. So, Drexel Hill, uh, thank you for listening. You've been with us since the very beginning, and uh, we enjoy uh, the, the fact that we can point these things out. I, uh, Delaware County is very near and dear to my heart because in my former travels as a water delivery person, I actually had Delaware County and Bonner and Upper Darby High Schools were customers of mine for uh, about six years. So I got mm-hmm. to go there a couple times a week. Do they have pictures up in the high school of the fight from opening day? And that is not something that they take a lot um, of pride in. They should have. Uh, it was awesome. <laughs> it was impressive. Yeah. Um, but they, the, uh, the schools definitely uh, were not pleased with the fact that there were so many students that were skipping school. Now, you know, in that area, it's not – it's not out of the ordinary. Like the day after the Phillies won the World Series in 1980, the uh, the public schools reported 75% absent. Well, yeah. And so naturally, um, you know, that was to be expected out there. So opening day, I, I, I don't think the teachers really would have cared that much. But then the fact that there was, you know, this brawl that broke out between the two schools was uh, not something that either school is particularly proud of. So Okay, there you go. I, so I learned something. You know, Scott always comes in, and, and with uh, the opening is always something that I'm hearing when you're hearing it. So it, very good. Okay. Bandstand Boogie. So I want to talk a little bit about Dick Clark, and particularly American Bandstand, because it sort of ties into what our episode is going to be this week. And I titled it uh, Favorite Performers of the 1970s. And the reason that I thought about American Bandstand is – Think back to when we were young and just if you wanted to watch one of your favorite bands perform, you really didn't have too many sources that you could go to outside of seeing them in concert. As far as television goes, there wasn't anything like MTV at the time. So the the amount of time that you could see your favorite singers or favorite performers was, was not you know, it, it wasn't a high percentage. You you have very limited, so you kind of mapped your schedule around if you knew somebody was going to be on TV to perform that you really enjoyed. Yeah, American Bandstand was probably the the way that most people were first introduced, at least live, to various artists. And, and I say live kind of loosely because for the most part they were lip syncing when they were on there. But at least you got to see a face, uh, you know, to, to what you were hearing. You know, we talked about in the past about the Midnight Special. So you'd see people in the Midnight Special but other than that, uh, it, w- it wasn't a whole lot. It, it, it certainly wasn't like it is now where, you know, I can pull up YouTube and I can see any video from any era that I want. And, you know, had I had YouTube back when I was growing up, I don't think I would have left the house. 
<laughs> Probably not. Um, with as much music that was coming out at that yeah. time. You know, when, when I first thought of the idea of bringing out favorite lead singers of the seventies and we, you know, Sean and I leaned so much on the eighties because it, it was our teenage years. And sometimes I don't think we give enough love to the seventies or the nineties. And I thought, what do I remember most about, about the seventies? I know for Sean and I, a lot of it was television. Mm-hmm. So, but a lot of it was radio. It was, it was, it was very much radio driven. And I'm going to play one of my, one of my favorite performers is the very first song that I ever remember that I think back that I can remember on, on the radio. So it, that, that particular individual is on my list. Okay. And so, you know, the, the people that listen to the show are going to hear it tonight. So, um, just a couple, couple of quick questions before, you know, you start, start with your list, Sean, um, agree or disagree. 1970s music was better live than the 80s or the 90s. Boy, I don't know about that. You know, it's it, it was definitely live. I mean, it it you certainly did not have the ability to to do you know later on, where at least I don't know that you were you weren't getting backing tracks because that did not come into play in the in the 80s or the 90s. But you you know you might have some things added into into it, but. You know, when you were a performer in the seventies, you really had to perform. I mean, it it definitely was um, it was much more about how you sounded because the image, while it still mattered, wasn't as important. Because I don't know about you, but on my list, there's some unattractive people on the list. Yes. Where in the eighties, it was so much about how you looked, and you could, you know, it was almost like that episode of the Brady Bunch where Greg was Johnny Bravo, right? <laughs> It's fun. I was thinking about that as yeah. I was driving over here. And uh, yeah, Johnny Bravo was going to go into my liner notes for, okay. for when I was going to introduce this particular All right. episode. So, and for those, I'm sure Gen Xers remember, you know, Greg was going to get the role as, a, as the singer Johnny Bravo because he fit the suit for yeah. no other reason. And then they distorted his voice. He, you know, he took, he took a lot of pride in his music ability uh, you know, on the show, he was this up and coming, or he was, just trying, he was trying yeah. to be, he was trying to be, um, uh, what was the song he sang real early in the show? Clowns never laughed before. <laughs> okay. Beanstalks never, you know, something, something, uh, till I first met you. Um, yeah. Gen Xers, I'm sure he was playing it on the cassette player. Remember yeah. that was the whole episode, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the Midnight Special because the Midnight Special for me was kind of my first taste of what the 70s sound was really all about. And I'm not talking about disco. Disco to me was kind of the, we, t- we talked about it in the one disco episode where we said how produced it was. It took the emphasis away from those particular performers because now you had kind of a system where you didn't need uh you didn't need the best drummer, you didn't need the best guitarist, you didn't need the best bass player. You just needed that kind of groove that you could get going behind it and then you put a singer in front of it. So it was a little bit more I would call it like an assembly line style of music. But that doesn't mean that the 70s didn't have plenty of great performing bands and singers out there. Right. And so when we get into my list here in a little bit, I you know, you talk about with you you're going to play the first song that you remember. I I don't have that because I I couldn't tell you the first song that I remember. But for me, the um, 
uh, my list is very heavy kind of after 1975. Okay. So in 1975, what am I, seven years old? It's like for the first time I was starting to pick my own music. You know, prior to that, you know, I'd hear what, you know, you'd hear what was in the house. You know, we've talked already about, you know, hearing what's coming out of our sister's room. Um, but, you know, there'd be things on the radio, you're in the car and, you you know, you hear, you, you ride with other people. But basically around 1975, 1976, I started to pick my own music. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I got my first radio. I was able to go up into my room and play my own music. And if I wanted to listen to uh, the AM station, WLPA, uh, because back then, you know, you had AM stations, or I wanted to listen to our FM 97, which was the FM station, I I could go do that on my own. And and those were the pop stations, at least in Lancaster. I'm old enough to remember when uh, WLAN 1390 and FM 97 were, and they have always been owned by the same group you know that was the same basically the same station they had an fm side they had an am side and uh 1390 i'm old and old enough to remember that the am station was more popular than the fm station it it was a gradual changeover trying to remember the name of the dj that used to be on but he he was originally on the am station and then made that switch over to the fm station when fm became more popular right Right. So, that, and that, that's why, like I said, I'm going to have things that, that are pretty heavy um, uh, from 75 uh, forward for those five, six years. But I still do have some things that I still kind of remember as a little kid that I liked, that, that I, I would hear and, you know, still kind of like spur those early memories. Yeah. And, and here in the United States, we talked about American Bandstand being so important to us. And because we do have some listeners overseas, uh, you know, in England, it was Top of the Pops. And Top of the Pops actually ran, I think it was the longest running music show in television history. It just finally came to a close. The actual regular show came to a close in 2006. Um, American Bandstand was done, I believe, by 1990. And then Top of the Pops ended up going all the way into the 2000s. So that was an impressive run. And for for the British groups, for a lot of European acts, to them that was their, that was them making it to the you know the the, the apex of their of their uh, industry was to be able to appear on top of the pops in Britain. Now, while I I loved the whole MTV uh, generation and era that we were a part of, I loved it. You know, I I I loved the fact that visuals came with the music. There was something special about being able to create your own images in your head without having someone else tell you and giving you a storyline, uh, you know, where you have some musician acting out a script for something that you might not have even thought of at all in the song. I kind of like that some of these 70 songs that I, I, I pick up, my brain doesn't go to a video. So it will go to a time and place. Mm-hmm. You know, it will go, like, like I said, it could go up to my bedroom where I'm listening to something. It could go into the car. I mean, there's... There's a you know some songs that I remember riding my bicycle around and just hearing music mm-hmm. because that's what that's what was done back then. We didn't have headphones like we do now. Uh, you know where it was if, if you happen to go by somebody's house and someone's sitting on the porch, they may be blaring the radio. Right, right. Okay. Well, why don't you go ahead and get started with your with your list? Okay, Scott. So with my list, I didn't put anything in order. Okay. So I, the, these. These artists and songs are not ranked, uh, you know, from one to I don't know how many I have here, twenty or so. Right. 
it's just kind of giving a different flavor. And I just, you know, my criteria that I used, you know, coming into this was similar to what you, you know, you kind of set the parameters that it's needs to be somebody or at least a, a band or an artist where you kind of have, as I took it, a charismatic lead singer, you know, that front yeah. person that, that it's more than just what was typical with the seventies sometimes that you would have these really good singers and, and artists that would kind of stand there. And they, they were great. And I actually had to leave some artists off my list who I really liked. But as I thought about it, they weren't necessarily engaging and, and you know, kind of a, a performer that was out there, you know, as I say, kind of charismatic. Sure. And over the years, I mean, there have been some, some not so stellar bands that have had wonderfully charismatic and engaging lead singers probably that was the one main reason why they were where they were, even if it was a one-hit wonder. Right, right. And I think as we get more into the 80s, where the visuals become more important, you're you're going to have more of a need for that charismatic lead singer. Yeah, the, the whole even thought of a lead singer, was that really even in existence up until, say, the 1970s? The 1960s, I mean, you had, you had some front and center people like Diana Ross and the Supremes, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. There weren't many... Where it was like, all right, I guess you, I guess you could say you started to get into that towards the end of the '60s, with like Jim Morrison and the Doors, that you know, those types of those types of groups or Janis Joplin. Then it started to make that transition. The '70s, you really see it become more and more important. Yeah, and you know, as well, before we went on the air, you know, the 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 name like Simon Garfunkel. Uh, of of the band Simon Garfunkel came up, and I said, well, they're not on my list, and they are a fabulous they're, they're two fabulous artists but just because of what we're saying about being charismatic i don't really know that either of them could be considered super out there charismatic incredibly talented yes but not charismatic so anyways so that's kind of as uh, folks as you're kind of listening to my list know that there were there were bands and artists that went on and went off and you know i had to kind of play with that a little bit so the first artist that i have this goes back to 1970 so this is early, you know, I'm, I'm three years old. And I don't know if I remember hearing this at, at, at that young of an age, it, but this is a song that was kind of part of my childhood. It just, because it was around, I heard it. And it's also from an art, from, from artists, you know, group that had a cartoon. I remember the cartoon. I do. And uh, this would be the Jackson 5 with ABC. And you're not going to have a more charismatic lead singer than little Michael Jackson. That's true. Yeah, he was special. He really was special, and he's on my list as well. And um, the thing I remember about Michael Jackson is think about what the Jackson 5 or even the Jacksons, as they became later known as. What would the Jacksons have been without Michael Jackson? They would have been playing the club scene in Indiana. Had they would would they have ever gotten out of Indiana? No, I don't think so. And so you could almost say that he made Janet Jackson's career as well, just because he kind of paved the way. And Janet's Im- immensely talented. I don't know if she would have been able to kind of work her way into the record industry without her brother kind of kicking that door open. It's hard to say, and you know, so when. You know, people that are a little bit younger, I mean, they're certainly aware of Michael Jackson. And I think that is, that says something when you can be that well known as an artist that, you know, I don't, how many years ago did he pass away? 
2008, 2009. And so he's still relevant and a part of the pop culture. Even despite some of the allegations made against him, he is still considered the king of pop. And, sure. you know, I, you know, Maybe I should have ended with Michael, but we're going to begin with Michael because I think Michael's a, that, that's a great way to start off the 70s because it was 1970 is yeah. when they came out with that, and it kind of kicks things off for me. Okay. All right, so the next song that I'm going to play goes to a completely different genre. Yeah, you and I don't compare notes much, but we actually did talk about this particular band yeah. and how it wasn't on my list. And I kind of gave my criteria as to why, but I certainly can understand why you would have this one on your list. And of course, for those of you you know who, who don't know, uh, this is The Who and won't get fooled again. And you're going to understand why it's on Sean's list for uh, charismatic performers here in just a minute because it kind of roars his way in here. this is Roger Daltrey as the lead singer um, you know Pete Townsend is kind of the brains behind The Hill and Scott you said that you know because Pete sings you know a fair amount of songs it, you know it wasn't necessarily what you were, were going for but for me Roger Daltrey among the 70s artists just stands out I mean he had a persona and I remember watching a documentary and, of course, this was a band that was around in the 60s. And they were a good band. They were okay. But it's it's not until Roger Daltrey embraced being the lead singer and kind of took on this this stage persona, this bigger-than-life, this... Uh, it not He's not a very tall man, but he al- was almost like a Thor character. Just, you know, I, I said that I, I saw the Live Aid performance mm-hmm. from 1985, and he's, he's around 40 years old, and he is jacked. You know, he just strutted and prowled around on the stage. Well, that's a good word to describe it. And I've, I've heard that for other artists in the past is, you know, they say they prowled the stage like a panther. And I can see I can see that with the Roger Daltrey. He, and he'd swing the microphone. That was his big move. He'd, you know, he'd take it by the cord and he'd just swing it around. He just kind of had this strut about him that some of the bigger name lead singers, they had that arrogance, that cockiness, that self-confidence that people were drawn to and hey you're a rock star why not why not live the part and like you said in the 60s he was kind of just the singer of of the band right and then he made this conscious effort well if we're going to be doing bigger venues and you know the larger audiences because in the 60s you're playing to clubs maybe a small arena but now in the 70s as the who becomes bigger and bigger now you're talking about arenas. Now you're talking about some stadiums. So you, you kind of have to become that larger-than-life character, and, and Daltrey made that conscious effort to do that. So I, I was I was observing a, a mother with her baby. I was, uh, I was talking to the mother today, and as she we were talking, she went to look something up on her phone, and she had like her son kind of like this little papoose sort of thing. And as she's looking it up, he's peering around. He's six months old, and he's peering around looking at her phone. And I was thinking, he'll never remember a time without a phone. Right. And so I, just like with 
the Jackson 5 and Michael Jackson, Roger Daltrey and The Who is the same for me. I don't remember them not being there. Okay. So I don't necessarily know when I heard them the first time, but I've always heard them because being born in 1968, you know, The the Who was a relevant band and there, you know, that song, one of the biggest songs was from 1971. Sure. Okay. And also, uh, you know, to kind of close out The Who, I remember, uh, you know, Back in the past, you, you sit around with, with friends and you kind of, you know, you, you create games sometimes. Like, what would you do with such and such a thing? And, and they, this was dealt with music. And the question was, if you could get in a time machine and you could go back and go see anybody live at any time, what, what would you pick? And maybe that's a podcast episode we could do sometime. Okay. But the, what I said, you know, just off the top of my head, I said, oh, I'd love to go back mid-70s. To the Spectrum in Philadelphia and see the hill. Okay, like in 1975 or so. I said you could almost see the smoke wafting up to the ceiling, and they just and and this was the song "Won't Get Fooled Again." And I said, you know, the uh, the keyboard section of the song that just would have been an incredible feeling at that time to see them at the height of their power. Yeah, uh, that's a good example. All right, so we're going to move on to as I said that you know how we had Roger Daltrey kind of prowling the stage. We're going to go to another artist incredibly charismatic lead singer completely different from Roger Daltrey And of course, this is Sir Elton John mm-hmm. with Philadelphia Freedom from 1977. Who's also on my list. Okay. And uh, I did pick a different song, so I'll, I'll play that. Good. Uh, when I didn't, Elton John may have had the most successful musical career, I think, of anybody on my list in the 1970s. He had something going every single year. Right. He actually held a record for most consecutive years with a top 10 hit. And it's pretty phenomenal. It's like 30 years, I think. But the 1970s, uh, he just, he exploded and was everywhere. And he started off kind of as a balladeer, but he really grew this stage presence about him and became one of the best live performers of his generation. He, he was and still is a showman. Uh, you know, he was big into the costumes. You know, I t- talked about how, you know, Roger Daltrey was this this jacked, uh, Englishman who looked like he would could get into a brawl at any time. That was not Elton John. Elton John was a little chubby, kind of a little effeminate. You know, had the the wacky glasses, the wacky clothes, but he was a showman. And he, he you know, even from sitting at a piano, it was amazing at how he could engage a crowd. And I think that was by design. I think he knew how, as a piano player, can I entertain this crowd. I guess the predecessor to that would have been in the 1950s when you think of Liberace. And Liberace used to wear these extravagant costumes and he performed in Vegas and he was really successful because he kind of had this uh, over-the-top personality which was kind of the precursor to to Elton John and and it's a formula that has proven to be successful with other performers as well. Right. Yeah, Elton John, he's one of the all-time greats. I, I, you know, 
I, it, it, you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody that's honest with you that doesn't admit to a, to liking at least one Elton John song. So that cl- you know that's uh, that's Elton John on my list. Philadelphia Freedom. So the next uh, group on my list. I hope people can recognize that guitar right away. That, of course, is Angus Young. This is the band ACDC. And if I'm going to play ACDC, well, in the 70s, it had to be Bon Scott. But if I'm going to play ACDC and have a charismatic lead singer, it's going to be Bon Scott. Sure. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is also the song that I chose (laughs) as well. So I'll skip over that one. Uh, Bon Scott didn't make my top 15. But he was certainly an honorable mention. Really? See, if I had ranked uh, Bonds, Bonds up there. He is, and and he was certainly within heavy consideration for me. I just felt that much strongly about the other ones that I chose. But it was not as easy a decision. Uh, I may have been that way for you as well, where you thought, "Yeah, you can, I can crank out ten of my favorites." Well, that ten turned into fifteen, and I looked down on my list. And there was still a lot of artists right. yet to be even put in there. So my honorable mention is pretty big as well. So, But here's an example with ACDC of where, kind of like The Who a little bit, where you have two, right? You know, So you have, with The Who, you have Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend, who are two co-frontmen in a way. Not just singers, but as a guitar player, Pete Townsend's out there and... He, you know, just like I talked about Daltrey swinging the mic, Townsend's swinging his arms when he's playing. Right. Well, the same is true with ACDC, where Angus doesn't sing, but he is a he, he's a front man. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's out there doing his little duck walk thing that he does, and you know, especially with Bon Scott there, and later on with Brian Johnson, but especially with Bon, just two inc- incredible front men. I think you can make the argument that Angus Young became more of the key central figure to the band's stage presence with Brian Johnson on stage versus Bon Scott because Bon Scott was more of a personality um, with the group, right? in, in my opinion. And the way I've heard Bon described by, by many people was that he was a pirate in, in a way. He just kind of was this you know, Jack Sparrow type of character where he was going from town to town and he was going to party it up and laugh it up. He was the kind of guy you wanted to hang out with and probably got you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. But yeah. he was he was always out there, you know, with this out this outgoing personality that kind of made you laugh. Yeah, might set somebody's jean jacket on fire with <laughs> breast spray and a lighter. Thank you, Steve Kratz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but that's ACDC. Now I'm going to go to my my next artist, which is a band, but it's basically one singer, and I think you'll uh, be able to pick up on this uh, right away. That, of course, is Paul McCartney and Wings mm-hmm. with silly, uh, silly Love Songs. Yeah, and, and Paul McCartney, turns out, was a great musician in just about everything he did. His original solo album didn't have a backing band. It was kind of like Dave Grohl with the Foo Fighters. He only came up with the name, the Foo Fighters, because 
he, he just happened to do that because nobody would have believed that he would have played all the instruments by himself. Paul McCartney in his first album played all the instruments himself. And the only reason that he created a backing band, which eventually became Wings, was because of going on tour. Right. And then because they toured as Paul McCartney and Wings, that's what kind of evolved into the album-making process of Wings. But make no mistake about it, it was always Sir Paul McCartney from day one. So... You know, there's always the discussion when it comes to the Beatles, you know, is it is it John Lennon? Is he your favorite one? Is it Paul McCartney? You know, you know, is it Ringo? Ringo's the coolest. But, you know, is it, you know, is it George? Everybody had like a, a different person. I think I was heavily influenced to really like where I liked Paul quite a bit was because I knew him as a solo artist. Yes. You know, and, and this is 1976. And what did I say earlier in the podcast? That's when I started listening to music. So if you can picture at this point, I'm eight years old. I'm up in my room. I love this song. Yeah, Paul McCartney was... I didn't even really know who the Beatles were. No, no. I knew of Paul McCartney before I knew of this band that he used to be in called the Beatles. And then as you know, you learn about the Beatles as you get older. But sure, I mean, the first group... The first time I heard Paul McCartney was a probably song just like this, right? If not this song as well. It's it, it I, you know, I I talked about it uh, during our "Don't Call Them Hair Bands" episode where, where I played the Poison song "I Won't Forget You," and when I was trying to come up with a Paul McCartney song, and I, I, I was struggling a little bit because this wasn't the first one that I remembered hearing. "Band on the Run" was the first one as a kid that may have been my first pop song that I really remember. Sure. And I debated going with that one. But when I played that song for the first time the other day when I was going through my list, it just made me smile. So that's why we got Paul McCartney and Silly Love Songs. Yeah, and he certainly uh, cranked out a lot of material in the 1970s. I think Elton John probably had more hit songs, but McCartney matched him in terms of albums released. I think McCartney released nine albums in the 1970s. So it was... He was always known to put out a lot of work Mm -hmm. and some really great and immortal, everlasting songs came out of his writing skills, but he had a tendency to throw a lot at the board. And there was a lot of garbage thrown out there. And unfortunately, you know, that's where he and John Lennon used to clash so much is because Lennon was the guy who had the best year for McCartney and said, that's not your best work. Right. And so that's why McCartney wrote so many just wonderful songs by the Beatles and every album they had was so strong because they had each other's ear right. and they were each other's best critic. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, Paul McCartney and Wings. Now, the next uh, artist that I'm going to play is kind of tied to the Beatles in a way. And when you, you're from that era and the discussion usually comes up, well, who do you prefer, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Well... As I was getting older and starting to listen to music, I didn't really hear the Beatles. Right. But the Rolling Stones were a band that was still putting up music, and this is Beast of Burden from 1978, about the time when I would have been able to appreciate music and the Rolling Stones. And this this is a song that, as a little kid, I remember being played on the radio, but this is one of my favorite Rolling Stones songs ever. It, this is my favorite. Yeah, it's got a... It, to me, this was kind of the redemptive moment for the Rolling Stones because, and Mick Jagger is on my list. Yeah. Because um, you're not going to get a more charismatic lead singer than Mick Jagger or a, 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 a guitar player in Keith Richards. 
I think you could you could make the argument that their live performances carried them through that middle part of the 70s where in terms of releasing commercial music they struggled yeah they, it was not their best time this was kind of a um, an album that showed that they still could be great right and then you started to go into the 80s um, and then they released you know two albums in you've got Tattoo You which right. really solidified them as all, an all time great band I, I would agree with that and you know Am I influenced by how old I was at the time? Yeah, probably. But, you know, here's a song, as you mentioned, you know, that you liked as a kid. And I liked it. Didn't understand the lyrics. Sure. But now, as an adult, I really get the lyrics. And I can appreciate the backup vocals in this. And and the way the guitars are kind of interplaying with one another. And we we mentioned the live performances. Uh, There are... Really, Mick Jagger takes a backseat to nobody in terms of a performer on stage. And the thing I always liked about Mick Jagger, how many times, Sean, did you and I go to a concert and you hear a guy try and screech like he did on the album and it's just not working? Right. Mick Jagger, today, at almost 80 years old, sounds almost like what we're listening to right now. I got to give the guy credit for being able to stay within a range that was good on the albums and just as good on stage. Yeah, I agree. I I, I totally agree. So I, I don't think you could have a, a list from the 1970s as far as top artists and not have the the Rolling Stones on there. My next artist, and uh, you know Scott, uh, I, I know it's on his list because of it. I heard him humming this before <laughs> we started recording. I'm like, oh great, we we already matched the song. But that being said, the song I'm going to play now had to be on my list. And this is Stevie Wonder with Sir Duke, 1976. The reason it's on my list, this is the first song that I I ever remember loving. That this was when I would say, oh, I have a favorite song. This was the first song I walked around and told people this is my favorite song. This is the first song I ever remember hearing on the radio. And I can even think back to the specific time I heard it on the radio for the first time. And probably what made it stand out to me is how excited people were when they heard it. We were with a group of people from our church, and it was a summer camp. Somebody had a radio. Mm -hmm. This song comes on, and I believe I remember everybody just kind of like going, yeah. Like I mean, everybody was excited to hear this song this is off of his album songs in the key of life and yeah stevie wonder that's that's probably why it stands out to me is because everybody was so happy to hear it being played it's a joyous song now now kind of what we're talking about with the list is about being you know charismatic stevie wonder is blind and sitting at a piano Mm -hmm. but even then he just oozes charisma well, it's it's so rare for somebody to be arguably the best at what he does. And not only did Stevie have an incredible voice, which you're hearing right now, but he was an incredible keyboard player. He played session for hundreds of other musicians just because he wanted to. You know, it's kind of like we, we mentioned Neil Gerardo, who plays with Pat Benatar, Pat Benatar's husband. But Neil Gerardo played on probably thousands of songs that were not Pat Benatar's but he just loved playing music and Stevie Wonder was one of those guys he would do the same type of thing and uh, 
to be one of the one of the be- very best at what he does in terms of uh, not only music making but being able to play a single instrument is it's impressive. Right, right. Just a good song. I, it. I don't know if it gets played enough. I mean, I I know some of the kids today are are aware of it. I remember your daughter Allie talking about that song, and and I remember being impressed that you know at at the time I, I think she was still in high school, and at eighteen she was still aware of Stevie Wonder and that song. Yeah, I taught my kids. That's that's right. All right, so kind of kind of in a similar vein. All right, so the the next artist that I'm going to play kind of have another kind of feel good happy sound to them. course we're listening to mr harry wayne casey of casey and the sunshine band and that's the way i like it and this was actually one of the recommendations i gave our listeners if you were one of the few that tuned into our disco episode i recommend it's that a you, good one go back and listen that you, you learn something that you youtube casey and the sunshine band performing this song live because it's it's excellent you really Recording, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you because some of these bands were so they were better live than what was actually captured in the recording studio. I think Casey and the Sunshine Band, unfortunately for them, and and they were extremely popular. They were better live than they were on the on the albums. And here's an example of where you know uh, Casey is is very much playing to the crowd. You know when when he performs, you know even to this day. There's energy on the stage, you know. Everybody in the Sunshine Band is there's there's energy, and he's you know still stands at the keyboards and still kind of is you know bopping up and down to the music, and it it's very it, it draws you in. It's infectious. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was looking for. Yeah, infectious. absolutely. Sure. Yeah, and one of the things I thought was cool about him is they they sort of had these choreographed moments where somebody from the horn section would come down uh, stage front and start dancing. And then Casey would jump out there from you know from behind the keyboard to go out there and dance with them, and they had like this you know little choreographed thing that they would do, and it just seemed like everybody was having such a good time. And, and I love that stuff. Yeah. And so you think about it, that type of music is feel good music. I I don't consider that disco. I mean, I I know it kind of had a disco feel to it a little bit, but to me, it, well, it's 1975 when that comes out. That that to me is just kind of in the clubs of Miami, you yeah. know. A lot of bands, unfortunately, got tied into disco because th- this is certainly a dance song. Yeah. But the disco sound, as we talked about before, was not a necessarily a live band. It was kind of that produced background music with a lead singer in front. Right. So my next song is by an artist who definitely is not a disco singer. We're going to go back to 1970. <laughs> it's Crackling Rose with Neil Diamond. We gonna ride till there ain't no more to go. Taking it slow. You know, Amy would be upset with me if I didn't sing along with this because <laughs> this is this is her favorite song. Really? Yes, it is. It's kind of a running joke between us. She, I'll go into the the deep part and then I, I'll sing to her, and she always makes always makes her laugh. 
I thought maybe she'd say, I don't want to hear you sing one here, Neil. But it's funny because, you know, Neil Diamond is, is known for other songs that were more popular than this, like Sweet Caroline. Rosie Chan. Yeah, there you go. That's all you're going to get. Yeah. See, that's, um, I guess we think alike with this because I, I did not know what you're telling me that, that this is her favorite song. Although Neil Diamond is not on my list. Huh? So, because um, I, the fact I kind of went obscure because I could have gone for one of his bigger hits. Right. This was a big hit. I think this was the number one hit. I love this song. Yeah. Yeah. This and I was, I was so glad when I looked it up and I saw it just made the 70s because I was afraid it might be late 60s. Yeah. I mean, Neil Diamond had, had such a great career in the 60s, late 60s. Right. Of course, he got his start as a songwriter. So, he, you know, for a guy that can write his own material and write good material, because for many years he was writing songs for other people. And I think that's how Elton John and Bernie Taupin got started. So they were writing songs for other people. And then they decided to keep their own own stuff. Now, would you consider Neil Diamond a charismatic lead singer? I think he has a lot of charisma, yes. Um, his fan base is extremely loyal there are people that have seen neil diamond at concert like hundreds of times okay because he is you know the movie saving silverman for uh, for anybody that has that saw it came out in the uh, early 2000s i think um there that's based on these three best friends that they have a neil diamond tribute band and Neil Diamond actually makes an appearance in the movie, but there, there's quite a there's quite a loyal fan base for for Neil Diamond, and rightfully so. I mean, the guy had a great great career, and for a lot of Gen Xers, most of that came as you said, it just barely kind of crept into the '70s. So for people like my age, you know, Neil Diamond is something I'd have to catch on to later, sure, because I didn't get to hear him on the radio, right? But uh, I think Neil is very deserving of being on the list, one of the all time greats. Here's another artist, and I wanted to include some country pop. Okay. So I didn't just want to stay on the, the one pop side of things, but this was definitely a pop song. This was not just a country song by a country artist, Mr. Glenn Campbell. And this is Rhinestone Cowboy. Singing the same old song. You know, we had this conversation with our mom and dad before we went on the air about what... Who are some of your favorite performers? I can tell you for a fact that our Uncle Ray was a huge Glenn Campbell fan. Okay. I remember listening, the first time I think I ever heard Glenn Campbell on, on the record player was at our cousin, you know, Bud's house when I would you know stay the night and Uncle Ray would play Glenn Campbell records for us. And this was one of them. This song was huge. Sure. This was 1975, so we're, we're right in the middle of the 70s. And, I don't know, for maybe about a year or two, I don't know if there was a bigger performer than Glenn Campbell. You, th there was a, a thing, as, as many Gen Xers you'll remember, back in the 1970s, the, the television variety show was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So you would have, you know, it could be Johnny Cash, it could be, you know, the... Uh, uh, the Brady's, you know, it, it could be, you know, uh, Sonny and Cher, Sonny and Cher um, um, but they would have artists on. And there for a while, you know, Glenn Campbell was in heavy rotation. Sure. And I think he was the summer replacement for the Rowan and Martin Laughing show. And that's kind of how he got a start in television. Glenn Campbell 
was a guitarist for the Beach Boys when they went on tour in the 60s. And he he had that, kind of had that pop experience. And I, I forget which one of the Beach Boys told the story about him, but they said that, you know, when he started touring with them and these girls started chasing the car and the the band's like running from them to get in the car. And Glenn's like, what are you running for? <laughs> They're girls. Like, you know, this is, this is like what I dreamed of doing. Right. He said until they started ripping him apart and he got, he got bruised. I think he got a black eye. And they said the next time the car shows up and they said, Glenn was the fastest to the car. <laughs> well, he was a, a well-known studio musician. You know, he was part of the famous Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Scott talked about, you know, other, like a, a Neil Gerardo who has played on other albums. Glenn Campbell played on some of the biggest albums in the 1960s. And, you know, most people don't realize that he was, you know, so, so influential in the, in the pop world. I think most people probably remember him as a country artist. They do. And Glenn Campbell really revived the country into popular music genre which eventually took even a stronger foothold in the late 70s into the early 80s with like Urban Cowboy, right. where you started to see all these country artists now on the pop charts. Johnny Cash was kind of that country rocker that was a pop star and a country star. Right. And then, you know, even Elvis in the 50s. And then it kind of splits off. You know, you have popular music go one way, country music go in the other way. I really can't think of anybody besides Glenn Campbell that really kind of brought the two back together again. Well, he's the first one that I know of. I mean, that I can remember. So 1975, you know, I'm, I'm you know, once again, I'm seven years old. So, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of Glenn Campbell and he's the first crossover artist I remember. Okay. Now, my next artist, much like Glenn Campbell, had a television show back in the 1970s. So obviously they were pretty charismatic. 1970 has that sound. Hey girl, what you doing down there? Dancing alone every night while I live right above you. This was a show we watched as little kids. This is a show we watched. This is Tony Orlando and Dawn with Knock Three Times. As he's getting ready to give the instructions. I don't think we ever missed an episode of Tony Orlando and Dawn. No, I don't think so. And then one of his backup singers, Telma Hopkins, ends mm-hmm. up going on to a pretty successful acting career. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was quite a big deal back in the in the middle of the of the decade in the mid seventies. Very charming, very very engaging. I you can still go on YouTube and he still performs and he's out there and he still is so likable. He, yeah, he had one of those personalities that just kind of made him stand out from, from other performers. He seemed very approachable. Right, just always with a smile on his face. And that's what you want to be when you're a performer. You could be having a terrible day, but the audience wants to think that you're having a good time. Sure. Because they want to have a good time. They paid a lot of money. And, you know, Tony Orlando and Dawn, they always brought it, you know, at least on their variety show every week. And and I, you're really, you've gone with some pretty obscure ones, and I'm, these are great, great examples. I'm glad you're glad you're doing this. Yeah. At, least, at least we didn't have a complete list of the same choices. Right, right. And that's kind of why I went obscure. And also, just you know, because I, I, I don't know that I don't, I don't have 
the you talk about the, the fans of Neil Diamond, how they're super loyal and they follow him around. Well, I'm, I'm a little more, bit more that way with bands from the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the early 90s, because that's my time. And that's, you know, that's when I was embracing artists. So I definitely liked the one hit wonders and, sure. and the pop hits back then, because yeah. that's all I knew. I just knew what was on the radio. Okay. All right. So we're going to go to another artist who definitely had uh, a lot longer career than just, you know, being a one hit wonder. Well, that sounds like Eric Clapton. Of course, this is Derek and the Dominoes, but yes. that's Eric Clapton with uh, Bell Bottom Blues. Yes. And although Eric Clapton is one of my favorite singers of all time, when it comes to being a performer, he never really struck me as somebody that enjoyed being front and center with a crowd. Well, he's on here for his guitar playing as much as his singing. Sure. It's, okay. the, it's the whole package. For, it, it, if I was doing an honorable mention, he was going to be an honorable mention. But for me, because you know, you'd, you'd kind of reference to me uh, when we were getting ready for this about maybe including guitar players, right. and, and I just thought, you know, Eric's the whole package. Which I'm glad you did because uh, I don't have guitar players in mind. But if there was a guitarist of the '80s for us, it's probably we might agree it's Eddie Van Halen. Um, for the '70s, to me, it's hands down. It's Eric Clapton. Sure. Yeah. And his 70s, his 70s material, especially when, um, you know, he kind of makes, gets out of the Derek and the Dominoes uh, and then gets into his solo stuff. He was always kind of the reluctant rock star. Right. Like he always seemed like the guy that didn't want to, you know, he, he performed, but he just kind of stood off to the side. But man, could the guy play? I mean, he's just unbelievable. He seemed to have more fun. When he wasn't the one singing, like when he right. was playing with other bands, he seemed to be a little bit, have his guard down a little bit more and was more willing to go out there. And, uh, you know, there's there's clips of him work with George Harrison and he's having the time of his life. When he's singing by himself, he's always so serious. But listening to him here, he's a great singer. He can sing. There's, there's a lot of soul in that voice. You know, one of the things I always thought about with Cream, you know, Jack Bruce is one of the... Probably one of the better frontmen of the '60s, and even though him and Clapton shared uh, vocal, I always thought that because the, the the cool thing about Cream was they would share vocals in the same song. And you I like hear, that. And, I, I and, like when bands do that. And Jack Bruce had a great voice, but I thought Clapton had a better voice. And I don't think he ever really fully used it. He started to you started to see his vocal ability improve as time went on. Right, and and Clapton's another artist. I don't remember not being aware of Eric Clapton. Right from from my earliest days. So that's 1973, with uh, then with Derek and the Dominoes with Bell Bottom Blues. Now my next artist, I can't say that I heard the song on the radio. Okay, but I do remember seeing it on like some late night shows. It might have been on the midnight special. I don't know. I didn't look to see if it's out there, but I do remember this song, and I remember this artist from the 70s. Now, he performed on the Midnight Special. But I, I couldn't tell you that was his song. But I just, I remember, this is James Brown. And this is Get Up Off of That Thing. From 1976. Get up off of that thing. Get up off of that 
that there was never an artist that worked a crowd better than James Brown. No, he was the master. And we kind of talked about it in our disco episode in the time leading up to the 70s and how important soul music was to kind of the backbone of, of what became dance music of the 70s. James Brown's got to be at, at the top of the uh, of the spine, so to speak, as far as a guy who was important to his to his craft of music. And this was my favorite James Brown song. And he kind of had a now he was always working. The guy always was working always, in show business, always right? always playing live. Yeah. But this was really his comeback hit that got him back on the charts and got him back on TV and got him back, you know, in the national spotlight. I know I saw this on television at some point in the 70s. Yeah, I, I, the first time I watched the YouTube video of this, yeah, he's, he's sporting the stash. He's yeah. got the mustache. That's a good look. But he still has the James Brown hair. And you're right. He can command. And that's probably why we love the Eddie Murphy version on SNL so much. Right. Is because he's doing the James Brown thing. And it's captivating. Yeah. I just remember watching James Brown. Um, and you know he had this whole little shtick going on where he would he would like get so worn out on stage and then his his the guy off the side of the stage would come over and he'd put like this cape over him and kind of lead him off but no 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 James had more to give the crowd yep. and he had to go back to the microphone to give more and it kept doing this and I, I, as a kid I was just fascinated by that the first time I think I ever saw James Brown was the Blues Brothers movie when he played the Reverend sure. in the church that's yeah. that's my first memory of James Brown so you're talking 1980 okay. But I have certainly circled around to this at an older age to really love the song that Sean just played. Right. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier with Glenn Campbell, give a little love to the country artists out there. The only two now, here's another country artist. His guitars are too good and firm. This is Waylon Jennings. Of course, this is Looking Back, I Texas. I need my name in the marquee lights. I got my song and I got you with me tonight. Maybe it's time we got back to the basics of love. Waylon Jennings had one of the best voices for a country singer I, I can ever think of. Especially a guy whose voice stayed this strong and clear at an older age. Distinct. You know who it is the moment you hear it. And there are a lot of famous country singers out there. You know, we already talked about Johnny Cash, Conway Twitty, George Jones. All of those guys, as the ravages of time kind of take its effect, these guys, they, you know, your voice starts to go on you. And you, you kind of get that little bit of a crackle. You start to get a little bit of a gravel. But I always remember Waylon Jennings sounding like this. Yeah. And, of course, you know, people will remember Waylon Jennings as singing the theme song to the TV show The Dukes of Hazard, but he certainly had a career much more than that. Well, that song would have been played had it not come out in 1980. Okay. Unfortunately, because I, I looked it up, it's like, oh, shoot, I can't go with that one. But, you know, you know, Waylon was somebody, he, he, you know, he, couldn't, he could not have been more different than James Brown. So James Brown's dancing, and he's he's moving, and he's working. Waylon's kind of standing there. So this is going a little against what I said about an artist that, that would stand there. But... One of those those singers and performers that every eye was on him. You didn't take your eyes off of Waylon. Yeah, and if you watch the like a YouTube clip of maybe something that he's done in concert, make no mistake about it. That spotlight is on him. So there's 
the 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 clip I remember watching of him on YouTube is he's he's doing I think I forget might have been Branson or or uh, the Grand Ole Opry or something, but the lights on the backing band they're off. It's pretty much him in a spotlight. I mean, you can hear the band obviously playing, but it's just him. So you have no choice but to right. Or you're drawn towards towards his presence. On but he's very expressive. I mean, it and a lot of his songs were like "Look Back, Texas," and you know, "Mama Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys," and you know, it's they're kind of meant to tug at your heart a little bit. And he wants to draw you in. And um, you know, one of the you know the the biggest acts to come out of the '70s, and that was 1977. My next group of uh, artists that I'm going to play. Now we're going to do a little more of the hard rock genre. And this is Aerosmith, early Aerosmith, and this is uh, uh, Train Kipper Owen. Of course, you know, Steven Tyler is about as charismatic as the lead singers you're going to have. And this song came out in 1974. Okay. It's hard to imagine that Aerosmith has been around for as long as they have. They had a whole career before I even really knew who Aerosmith was. I mean, I'd heard the song Sweet Emotion, Dream On. Um, but really, Aerosmith kind of jumped into my consciousness with Run DMC and uh, Walk This Way. Right. But Walk This Way is a great, great rock song. Just the original version that was that came out in the 1970s. So you didn't really have much knowledge about Aerosmith prior to that? Not really. All right. no. So Because that was something, you know, now I'm three years older, but I just remember kids being much older than me, you would hear it. You hear it on the bus, and there were people that were hardcore Aerosmith fans. Yeah, the, I mean, the first time I ever remember hearing Aerosmith or watching Aerosmith on MTV is was when the band was going through all this turmoil, and I don't think Joe Perry was with the band. They did a video. No, when when they first went on MTV, when they made those early videos, Joe Perry's not the band, and the the song's bad. You know, it's not their best. Stuff. When, when the lightning strikes, I think so. Yeah. Um, that's my memory of them, and so they were in the in the depths of their drug addiction at that point. To me, I, Aerosmith was a band that had a career, and now they don't. And somehow they miraculously made a, made a big comeback. So Aerosmith is a band, and um, that we would hear on the jukebox at our local pizza shop, Papadino's. If we would go, you know, Scott in in one of our last episodes uh, talked about how we would con our dad into getting us a pizza at midnight on a Friday. But there were other times we conned him to go to to Papadino's, and if we would happen to walk in there on a Saturday afternoon and pick up a pizza in the mid seventies, there was a good chance Aerosmith was going to be in that jukebox. Well, there was a lot of times where we would eat there as a family. Yeah. And we would go there on like a Sunday early, like five six o'clock at night. We would go there and have dinner. And we would always, at least I would always ask for quarters to play Donkey Kong or Mm Pac-Man. And then, you know, how many plays did a quarter get you in the jukebox at that time? It was like at least two songs back in the day. But I love that. I I love the fact that there was the old jukebox and it was like a big deal. And you would see people up at the jukebox going through the selections to see what was available. Because, you know, you had a quarter. You didn't want to waste that quarter. That's right. You had to have a good choice. (laughs) You had those two good songs that you came up with. And uh, so that it definitely is a memory for me as Aerosmith being on the Papadina's jukebox. Nice. Now, the uh, we're going to stay in the hard rock uh, genre. And Scott talked about not really having any guitar players. Well, if I'm going to have a guitar player. I, I, I got to have the king, Eddie Van Halen. This is from 1979. 
Van Halen 2. That's right, and this is uh, Dance the Night Away. This is a young Van Halen at the time. Oh, yeah, and they have a charismatic lead singer by the name of David Lee Roth that just jumped in there. How many bands have had the great guitarist and the great frontman? It's a formula that you could go back as far as... I mean, how far do you want to go back? You're talking Plant Page. You're talking... Townsend, Daltrey, yeah, Richards, Jagger, yeah, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Well, they, for the most part, you're talking the '70s. I would say from the '80s, you can throw in John and Richie, you know, the, and Bon Jovi. That's that's you know, I don't know. You're going to get much beyond that as far as the uh, where you have the two that are kind of locked in together, right? You know, maybe you could say Steve Stevens and Billy Idol. Okay, you know, have that kind of chemistry with one another. But no one did it better than Van Halen. When these guys took the scene, they drew everybody's attention. It was you sort of see stuff like that happen maybe once a decade. Yeah. And Van Halen kind of did that at the end of the seventies, and just like you know, we mentioned Guns and Roses in previous episodes in the eighties, and even like a Nirvana in the nineties, where they have a sound that is just it captures people's uh, attention, and that they. They are drawn to it, and it, it kind of revolutionizes the whole industry, which Van Halen sort of did with that L.A. rock scene. They they came in with a sound, and, and as you're saying, and I agree with you with what you're saying, you know, like with the Nirvana, where music was going one direction, and a band single-handedly took them in a completely different direction. And that's what Van Halen did, because coming out of the 70s, the rock was starting to be considered dinosaur music. It was kind of slow. It was, you know, it wasn't what was happening. Disco was happening. Yeah. Yeah, and then Van Halen, the debut album comes out in 1978, and effectively nine, ten, about a year later, you have the uh, Disco Sucks demolition <laughs> right. in Comiskey Park, and uh, Disco's not around much longer. And you get the whole next decade plus of what we, you know, you know, have talked about in our Don't Call Me Hair Bands episode where you have the, the whole scene that was coming out of both Los Angeles and on the East Coast. Okay. All right. Uh, my next artist put, uh, when I came up with my Ladies That Rocked, this band was on there. This may be the most popular song. This is Blondie with Heart of Glass. Mm-hmm. Of course, Debbie Harry is the lead singer of Blondie. I love the drum. You don't think about it as a little kid, but Blondie the band was really good. Yeah. Just as musicians. Because they were able to play, uh, you know, so many different styles of music. It's one thing to kind of have the same sort of sound that so many groups do, but they were able to go from up-tempo to down-tempo to rap to reggae. It was pretty impressive what they were able to do as, as uh, players. But as good as they were, Blondie doesn't exist without Debbie Harry. So we, we talked about how in the 70s, the look wasn't as important. Well, this song came out in 1978. It's starting to become important. 
And if you have a, a lead singer who's a good singer, Debbie Harry, I like her voice. She, she does a great job. She was beautiful. Yes. And I think she made things easier for a singer like Pat Benatar to come very closely after her. Uh, Debbie Harry was, and she was, she wasn't like a prima donna type of, didn't give that persona to to fans because Blondie was very New York City, CBGB's yeah. kind of punk. Yeah. So she didn't have this, you know. She was like posh, posh spice in a way. Right. Like, uh, like she kind of uh, snarled a little bit. She seemed approachable. Uh, like, you know, I hate to say the guys think about that way, but, you know, when you're a young guy, you think about it that way. Hey, you know, I could go out with her, you know, kind of thing. Debbie Harry seemed like, you know, every guy's girl. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Very attractive. And she had a presence about her on stage where, you know, she took command. She was in charge of that. Right, right, and they definitely were a band, you know, as as you know Scott has said. But you know, it this was without a doubt a case where Debbie Harry overshadowed everybody else in the band. All right, uh, you mentioned the uh, lead singer guitar player combo, and and what a great formula it is. Well, I think this band may have originated that formula. This, of course, is Led Zeppelin with When the Levee Breaks from 1971. So are you doing this more for Jimmy Page? I know you're a big Jimmy Page fan. Yeah. Or are you doing this more for Robert Plant? Who, who's your, who are you going to talk up here? So here's the thing. I like Robert Plant's solo work. A lot more than Robert Plant's work in Led Zeppelin. I know people aren't going to like to hear that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a bigger Jimmy Page fan. However, I think that it's kind of both in a way, just based on the parameters of what we decided for this episode, because it's two code leads. It, and could you say John Bonham is? He's every bit as prominent on drums as what those two guys are. Sure, and. Led Zeppelin, you know, again, I had heard Led Zeppelin on the radio, but I was a little kid. And what little kid can really get Led Zeppelin and what they're about? I kind of went back and researched Led Zeppelin when, as I got older because so many people made such a big deal about them. People that were older than us. And I ended up watching the concert film uh, that Led Zeppelin did and just how mesmerized the, the crowd was in the concert. Robert Plant, as a lead singer, was, you know, he might have been arguably one, uh, you know, one of the most charismatic frontmen of his time. Oh, yeah. And when you have that plus a great guitarist like a Jimmy Page, who, side story, his, uh, uh, when Wham was doing a concert and, Backstage, Andrew Ridgely, who was a huge Led Zeppelin fan, was informed by his bodyguard. It says, um, Jimmy Page wants to meet you. And Ridgely's like, you got to be kidding me. We're <laughs> <Or> Wham. <laughs> right. Turns out Jimmy Page's daughter was a huge Wham fan. Sure. So they had their picture taken with him. But um, Jimmy yeah. Page is the man, though. Jimmy Page, uh, just when you can see how many, uh, not only the guitar, but other string instruments that he can play so well, it's 
it's it's mind-boggling how talented he is. Right, and as as a a duo, I, I think in many ways they're untouchable. Although they're they're not my favorite, I I can completely appreciate everything that um, you know makes Led Zeppelin great. All right, so I have two more to go. Now, that my next artist, my my penultimate artist that I'm going to have here is from 1970. Right, brings out the decade. Okay. I remember this song and this band. When I started kindergarten, because I remember kids at school thinking this band was a big deal. And I remember even if it was a first or second grade, I think we did an assembly at school where one of the teachers, whoever probably was leading the music at the time, was a big fan of this band. And we actually, uh, the, the one class ended up singing music from this song, from this album, and specifically this song. say who this is but this is the Beatles for those of you out there who, who don't know and this is of course Let It Be and more specifically uh, obviously Sir Paul McCartney and this is one of the best songs ever written yeah in uh, which just goes to show how talented Paul McCartney was like I said McCartney could throw a lot of stuff out there but he threw he had some unbelievable gems and it, you know you had mentioned that maybe it was good for him to have John around to kind of bounce him out and tell him what needed to refine and, and what he needed to work on well, whatever was said, you know, in the studio worked with this. It's still amazing to this day how many more albums the Beatles have sold than anybody else. And it's not even close. And you're talking you're talking about Elvis Presley, you're talking about some of the biggest names in music history and they're not even halfway to what the Beatles have sold over the la- over the last 50, 60 years. It's incredible. But isn't it amazing us Gen Xers, all of you out there listening, I mean, think about it. You know, we we run the spectrum from 1970 and the Beatles. You know, we're going to go all the way to what came at the end of the 90s. I mean, later on in future episodes, we'll get deeper into some of the, the late 90s music. But, I mean, just an incredible amount of different types of music that we had the privilege of growing up and listening to. Yeah, it's we really were, I think, the, when it comes to popular music, and particularly rock and roll or whatever you want to call it, I think we were the most, we had the best. We really did. The most competitive charts, the most, uh, you know, from top to bottom, year after year, week after week. You know, you're talking about great songs that are getting knocked off from number one because there's just that much more coming at it from, you know, below them in the charts. We really did. It, it was such a great time for to be a music fan during during that era. And, and we talked about it with just that 1987 countdown, how many different types of music were on the charts at that time. It, all these songs that you, that Sean has played so far, you could have heard one right after another on a countdown list. Right. Okay. To show you how great the 70s were uh, for music, I don't even know the Beatles as, as my number one artist. You know, I, I did not rank, but if, if I did do a ranking of who 
if I had to come up with somebody that brought the 70s to mind for me, it would be my next band. Was it Tom Friggin' Jones, Sean? <laughs> it is not Tom Friggin' Jones. Oh. I think uh, that sounds like the great band Queen. And I'm so glad that Freddie Mercury has had a bit of a revival and appreciation for how great he was. Yeah. When I was a little kid, and this came out in 1975, Queen was my favorite band. Sure, I could, I could totally get that. Yeah, I, I used to, uh, I mean, I, I, I was a knucklehead, and I would like write on the top of papers that I would hand in class. I put like Queen up in like the corner. I don't know what my teachers were thinking about this. No, I'm sure. I'm sure there were some of them that did, like that music teacher. Because <laughs> I draw the logo. Your you know? music teacher would have got it. <laughs> yeah. If he's got you singing "Let It Be" in music class, right? He yeah. would have. He would have been like, "Yeah, yeah. there's my guy right there." Yeah. Pro- oh, that's true. Yeah. Now Queen, and I'm going to talk about Queen in a little bit. But Queen, I think, was the ultimate band that really when they performed in a concert really engaged their audience well you know once again you have the same formula where you have just an amazing lead singer who is more than just a singer i mean freddie took on this persona where he was very theatric as people got to see in the movie bohemian rhapsody and i think that's pretty accurate in in a lot of ways but there also was brian may you know who he was just one of the all-time greatest guitar players that the two of them could play off of one another yeah and brian may who I wouldn't necessarily call him somebody who is a charismatic performer, but he's a, certainly a charismatic guitarist. Yeah. He, is, uh, he, he has amazing ability and range as a guitar player and a very underrated singer. Because as, as is Roger Taylor, the yeah. drummer. I mean, the, those three voices are the, the Queen's sound. I mean, the backup vocals, to me, are as important to Queen as Freddie's lead voice. Well, I had mentioned Top of the Pops earlier in Britain. And music videos could actually be stemmed back to Top of the Pops and Queen because, as the story goes, when they performed, when they had the song released, Bohemian Rhapsody, and it was on the charts, Top of the Pops wanted it on their show. And Brian May said, how are we going to be able to recreate this doing it lip syncing? Because that's all you could do on Top of the Pops, just like Mm -hmm. American Bandstand. So he said the reason that they came up with that video that they did, which became very famous and kind of jump-started videos to follow, was because they didn't want to, They said they didn't want to look like a bunch of jerks on Top of the Pops, obviously lip-syncing to a song that was very hard to do. Right. And so that video, that iconic song, really kind of jump-started music videos in the future. Yeah, interesting, though, you know, that song, You're My Best Friend, which, which uh, we just played um it was, you know, written by the band member I didn't even mention, John Deacon, the mm-hmm. bass player. Uh, you know, very underrated. Uh, doesn't perform with them anymore. You no, know, he retired. He retired. Uh, he, um, you know, I think, I forget what, he wrote another one, Bites the Dust. I know he wrote uh, You're My Best Friend. And there was another song they wrote. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But he basically only wrote like three songs for the band. All no- went number one. <laughs> you know, and and because I, I I think it was like Roger Taylor said, you know, we wanted him to write more songs because he's really good. He he just didn't give us that much, but when he gave it to us, they were great. Yeah, yeah. So Queen is an excellent choice as your favorite 
Um, you want to run down your list again? Sure, we'll go down my list. Um, we'll go from the first one I played, which was uh, the Jackson 5. Uh, number two was The Who. Number three was Elton John. Number four was ACDC. Number five was Paul McCartney and Wings. Number six, The Rolling Stones. And once again, this is not in any type of order. Um, number seven was Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. Uh, number eight, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Number nine was Neil Diamond. Number 10, Glenn Campbell, the Rhinestone Cowboy himself. Number 11 was Tony Orlando and Dawn. Number 12, Eric Clapton as when he was fronting Derek and the Dominoes. Number 13 was James Brown. 14 was Waylon Jennings. Number 15 was the band Aerosmith. 16, Van Halen, who happens to appear like on every list I ever do. Um, <laughs> 17 was Blondie. 18, Led Zeppelin. 19, uh, you know, some would argue the greatest band of all time, the Beatles. They may be right. And number 20, my favorite band from the 70s, Queen. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the first half of our episode here on your favorite performers of the 1970s. And once again, you know, Sean and I just want to say thanks to all of our listeners for putting us over a thousand views in our six month history. Uh, Actually, we're up to eight months now. Holy cow, it's been eight months we've been doing this podcast. That's right. <laughs> a labor um, of love. But we uh, we certainly do appreciate we're now up to uh, 11 countries worldwide. We're at uh, 38 states in the United States and plus the uh, Washington, D.C. So we just continue to grow a little at a time, and it's because of you, the listener. And if you do want to tell a friend, um, we will announce at the end of our, uh, you know, Sean's playlist is available on Spotify. If you go onto Spotify and type in Sean's favorite performers of the 1970s, his playlist should show up. And, you know, we're trying to work on getting feedback from you, the listener, and we just want to say thanks. Right. And so, as you know, everybody says at the end of the podcast, you know, if you can give us a, a five-star rating, you know, leave a, a nice comment, anything that can help us go up in the ratings that kind of get the word out, it's, you know, we're growing. It's kind of by word of mouth, and, and we appreciate uh, um, the fact that you are helping this thing grow. And, and you know, like Scott said, my playlist is available. I went and created a Spotify playlist, kind of catalog that hopefully moving forward, we can put a, some of our other uh, lists up there, and it's called Gen X Playback Playlist. So kind of look for that. And like Scott said, my list is up there if you just go ahead and you put Sean's favorite performers of the 1970s. All right. So when we come back next time for part two of our episode, I'll go through my uh, top performers of the 1970s. And we will talk to you then for Gen X Playback. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. We'll talk to you later. See you.